right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. All right, we're going to do this opening ad a little differently than we usually do it. You're going to do it for us, John. You made an equipment change this year. I think it's fair to say it worked out pretty well for you. I just want to know, is there anything you want to say to the haters? <laughs> oh, uh, yes, I told you. Uh, for all of you, you know, experts of the game who said, oh, you know, John's not going to make it. I don't know why he's changing. Oh, he's only chasing the money. Uh no, I've repeatedly say I don't do this for the money. I saw an opportunity to improve my game. And I think based on how I've played this year, I've proven it right. Even through a manufacturer change, I've had arguably the best year of my career. So uh, hopefully this is the beginning of, uh, of a great stretch of golf. Hmm. That's a, that's well said. I just I am curious though. What what is the difference maker for you? Is it you know is it golf ball? Is it you know the irons? I, I I'm always curious at the highest level what truly does make that difference. It's a combination. Uh, I think I can also mention for people that didn't know, my last year of college, my last semester, I had major Leah Callaway back. You know, I had a uh, Callaway irons, Callaway wedges, and a mix of drivers and woods. I, I tried everything, so it wasn't. I actually kind of took a gamble when I turned pro and switched everything <laughs> to TaylorMade, right? So that's pe- something people don't know. Plus, the way I grew up, I didn't have a really truly properly fitted club until I was in college. So I basically just played with whatever it was given to me, right? So adjusting was never very difficult. Now, when it came to Callaway, obviously, you know, I had asserted my dominance to the green over my first few years as a pro. So I didn't want to lose that. And before I made my decision, actually before, it was the Monday of Zozo, I went from Vegas to San Diego to go to Callaway and, and try out some stuff and see. And uh, I actually really liked the driver. Uh, what I thought was gonna be the hardest transition ended up being the easiest, which was finding a driver that worked and kind of worked the whole bag. Um, irons, they all performed really well, looked beautiful. It, it was pretty easy. It was actually what I thought was gonna be the easiest change, what ended up being a little bit of the hardest, which was the putter. You know, I played my whole life with the two balls until I moved to the spider. And I think that transition is kind of what going from a face balance putter to a toe hang and then back to a face balance was kind of the, the harder transition. And now with the, with the Rossi, I'm back in a toe hang, right? So it's a bit of, it was a bit of a harder work to go with that. But what actually made me change, I had a lot of conversations with Phil Mickelson and I've always struggled inside 150 yards compared to the best in the world, right? I'm not going to say I'm, I'm bad, but I'm not as good as I would like to be in that category. And spending a lot of time with Phil uh, he explained certain things and we talked about certain things that made me realize that changing to the Callaway ball and with some of the Callaway equipment and, and combinations could make me make me a better player. And that's where I saw where I could improve the most. Um, and that's why I changed. At the end of the day, ball striking is made because of the, the characteristics of my swing. You know, my ball wrist and the way I swing is what makes me a good ball striker. So it's just tuning the clubs to that, which doesn't take much when you haven't changed shafts in pretty much 10 years. <laughs> and talking about that with Phil, that made me realize I could improve. And then seeing how the ball reacted, it made me realize I could improve, right? Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but 
you know, just being able to use different wedge shots, different clubs inside that distance to to have different spins, different trajectories, and be able to maneuver and have control over the spin of the ball a little bit more would make me want to change. And you know, I feel like I I, I can get still a lot better than I would have done th- I, I have done this year. Early on, it was an adjustment period, but still, you know, I can see the future my level in in that area of the game become a little bit better than, than what it was before. And that's a lot better. And that's what would make me decide to change. When Phil is talking to you about that, is does it all make sense? <laughs> I I, uh, I say that in terms of, of course, it probably makes sense to you, but Phil could, uh, the way Phil gets into the nitty gritty of that kind of stuff, I'm, I'm curious, you know, just what that conversation actually was like on the detail level. Well, I've spent enough time with him to, to know what he means with certain things, right? Um, I've also learned... Because I'm a golf information and golf technique junkie. I just, I watch every instructional video I can get my hands on. A lot of times, you know, all these great players that have accomplished a lot and they're the best in something in their game. A lot of times you got to understand what they are saying with what they're really doing. Because they they tell you what they're feeling and obviously what they feel is never going to be wrong. But a lot of times between what they are actually doing and what they feel, there's a little bit of a discrepancy, right? Same with me. I tell a lot of times where... I feel like I'm releasing the club in some of my shots and compared to others, I ain't releasing anything, right? So it's just realizing what is what he means by what he's doing. And uh, after spending a lot of time with him, I feel like uh, I have a pretty good idea of what some of those certain things he talks about when he gets into technique and certain details, uh, I get it. But he didn't get too much into it. He just... He uh, he's clearly been improving his recruiting techniques since he was the assistant coach at ASU because it's improved a lot. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> Those conversations I had with him were were a lot better than I can imagine were in the past. <laughs> so let me get this straight: the number one player in the world is watching every instructional video he can get his hands on. Did I hear that part right? Oh yeah, I love it. I just love watching it. What do you what do you pick up on? Because I'm I'm always curious with that, right? Like when you get to a certain level, obviously, you know you're going to be a better player than anyone that can help you with your game. What do you pick up on? You know, either from an instructional video or from coaches. What what can what what does that teach you? I think the one thing to learn is that at least from what I also have in my experience is a lot of people, a lot of instructors are going to teach the exact same thing, the exact same mechanics, just explain it in a completely different way. Right, which also means people would understand the same thing, or an instructor can learn how to explain something in many different ways to tailor to that player. Right, that's why I think uh, a good instructor, like uh, like for example, Butch Harmon was, who succeeded with so many different players, is somebody who can tailor what he knows to that one player. Right, when you have one instructor that has one theory or one way to teach, it's only going to work for certain players. Other players can either cannot do it or they won't understand what it's trying to say. I think that's where you learn a lot about, about a lot of things, right? It's about when, let's say, bunker technique. When you have different people explaining bunker technique, what what do they mean which, with each thing? You know, what are the key components to, the, to, to what they consider a good bunker technique, etc., etc., right? I mean, and then I focus a lot more on players, like a tutorial video from a player, and see what he's doing. A lot of times I'll watch it on mute because what they say and what they do does not match at all, right? And I'm probably guilty of that as well. It's what we feel. It doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly what you're doing. 
I mean, your golf swing to to the amateur eye appears to be pretty much as simple as they come on the PGA Tour. I know that there was a, I think the Memorial or something this year. They had a like a swing tracer going for you, and they did it for pretty much everyone. And yours was the closest trace on the backswing to the the downswing, and I just found that interesting. And I'm wondering, you know, why we don't see see more players with shorter swings in pro golf, and whether or not you would describe your swing as simple. I must say to everybody listening here, and this is where you know I've done a lot of studying of this. Be careful when you watch a video down the line on where the camera angle is set. You have to be careful because if it's not perfectly on line, the club path is going to appear wildly different to what it really is. I am way more inside the line downswing than I am on the backswing. That is just a fact. <laughs> I've seen that video you're talking about. I believe it's from last year at Memorial. Uh, and me and Tony Fino actually talked about it because we saw a replay once and we were laughing that this is the very first time in our lives we saw each other swing be as close to path <laughs> as, as I saw on that video. So that, that's why I mean, you know, uh, there's many more players that have it way more online uh, than I do, backswing compared to downswing. But I think you have to understand the characteristics of a lot of people, right? I'm a taller player with, let's say, more long legs than, than arms, right? Um, so when I swing, I'm so much closer to the ball, I'm more on the upright path where I don't have that much room to drop the club inside. When you have somebody who's farther from the ball, is going to have much more room to maneuver it. But uh, yeah, I guess I go based on simplicity. I'm not a person who thinks about where his hands at. I'm, I'm more, uh, his hands are, I just more about body rotation and Gary Player said it once, and Ben Hogan said it as well. Once you get to the top, if you let your fires, uh, your hips, or your hips fire properly, that club is going to fall into the slot perfectly. That's probably why it's not much of a discrepancy, right? Once I get to the top, to the top of my swing, I'm all hips, and I just let it go from there. And you said you're, you know, you're a technical geek, but also uh, I hear you say you're a numbers geek. Are you into the the analytics, and uh, are you looking to where you can shave off 0.1 strokes by driving it here instead of here? And I'm wondering what that process is like for you. Oh hell no, no, <laughs> God no. I actually, me and my caddy have fun with the people that use stats and make the strategy based on stats. Uh, it, it's just funny because I've never worked that way, right? I just my brain is never really. I don't make a strategy before I tee off. I get to the tee, look at where the pin position is, look at the conditions we have, and then from there I made a, I make a strategy. That's about it. There is some holes in some cases where I'm like, under no circumstance I'm gonna hit more than X off the tee here, or I won't go for this green unless I have, uh, let's say, four iron or less. You know, there's certain circumstances, but for the most part, much like Sevi, there's no game plan. I get to the tee, see where the pin position is, and basically I trace back, which is the best spot on the fairway for me to attack this pin, and what do I need to hit to put it there? That's, that's pretty much how I think about it. Hmm. What about in between tournaments, as far as just looking at what you've done well, what you need to improve on, you know, which ways you're trending in certain areas? Is that something you look at? Yeah, but how long of a period are we talking about, right? Like I'll, I'll usually, if I'm working on something, you need some time to put that into effect, right? You got to be able to try this on tournaments to see if it's working or not. That's kind of where where I'm at, right? Like you got to do it under pressure when it matters most. So that's why, you know, if it's one week to the next, I'm not really going to look into it because it's not enough data to support anything, right? So I usually do it every couple of months, you know, three, four months. If I were to think about next year and, I'm, and if I'm trying to improve something, I'll be working on it and I'll look maybe right before the Masters, see if it's trending the right way or not. 
because you need enough events and different weather conditions to make sure you're doing something properly. At least the way I think about it. Some people might look at it every single week and want to know a significant difference, but you know, it all depends on what courses you're playing and what you're playing, right? When you're playing Torre Pines, you're not hitting many wet shots. So your stats can either be really good or really bad, depending on how those three shots went the whole tournament, right? If you're playing an event like Palm Springs, where every other hole you're hitting wedges, you know, it's going to be much more valuable. Do you ever look at, at, at stats and are, are very surprised, either good or bad, at how different categories net out? I hear, you know, Rory at CJ Cup was talking about how great he was hitting his irons, how poor he was driving it. He was leading the field in driving and was negative strokes gained in approach, despite what he felt. Does, it, does that ever feel different than what the numbers say? Sometimes, yeah. Well, I guess it is relative to the field, right? So I guess Rory was, even if he wasn't feeling good, still better than the rest. Uh, it, it's relative to the field, not to what you think you could do, right? So that's kind of where I see it. And it, so for the most part, in my case, they match up for the most part, right? If, uh, you know, like like you might feel like when, when you're in the West Coast swing, a pebble, Tory, where the greens can get a little bit bumpy. You know, those pointer greens in the afternoon can get bumpy and you think you've made no putts and you look and you're gaining strokes in the field. You're like, okay, maybe all of us had a hard time, right? So it's, it's, it's a little bit uh, conditional to where you're at. Well, we love to make jokes about how broadcasters always say the word perspective whenever they have any kind of mention of a tour player having a child, either having one on the way or just have one. They always just say perspective, perspective. And your play was great, and it got even better after having a baby, and that does not happen to everyone. How did you manage to get you know even better during that time period? You know, all credit to Kelly. She always said, actually, she told me, and even this past year before she got pregnant, she's like, I believe you're going to win your first major when you become a father. And I'm like, God, I hope it comes before. You know what I mean? Like, I want to win it as soon as possible. <laughs> but all credit to her. She saw something, you know, of maybe contrary to people, people's image of me. I'm a very responsible person who takes care of the people around him, right? Uh, I'm the only person who's in, bachelor, in his own bachelor party had to be the one to behave because everybody else wasn't going to behave, right? <laughs> I know I couldn't count on them. So I've been almost like... Not a dad, but like a big brother to a lot of my friends when, when certain situations, right? I'm a uh, dedicated, responsible person. So I think she always saw that me being a dad would almost give me somebody or something else to play for more than just myself. And to a point, she was right. It's something we're both looking forward to for a very long time. And she had such a good pregnancy and all, all things got to be said, right? She had no problems. She was actually happier pregnant. She was one of those few people that ever get that and that only made it easier for me right the fact that there's no stress on her there's no stress on me she's as happy as can be right it's just one less variable for me to think about while I'm playing and when he was born he was everything went so well he was so healthy that you know I just went to play it, it was hard in Augusta because it was the first week and you know it was two days old and I had to leave to go play the Masters and it was a little bit odd in that sense but after the PGA, I kind of started internalizing it. Um, and not so much while you're playing, it's almost when I'm done playing. Again, like you said, perspective and humility. Just because when he sees me, he couldn't care any less if I shot 61, 65, or 85. He looks at me and expects that. And it's made it so much easier for me to flip my switch to where I see him, I'm dad, I'm husband, I'm John, I'm having a good time, and then, you know, golf is secondary, whatever's over, it's over, right? I feel like even if I, I knew before, it really puts, again, into perspective what's important in life. And while 
I'll still get upset when I miss a shot on the golf course. Once I'm done playing golf, I'm done with my round and I'm done doing what I had to do. It's it's over, you know. Uh, flip a switch. We're smiling. We're happy. It won't affect my mood of the golf course what i do on the golf course and that's i think the biggest blessing it could have given me i've always been pretty good at keeping it separate but you know after losing a tournament it, it does make it a lot easier to process uh not that i ever want to feel like that again but it, it definitely helps um just because again everybody has a bad day at the office it's nobody else's fault but yours and your child still expects you to be dad and and be the person he wants you to be, right? So it's uh, it's a blessing in that sense. It's given me a the blessing of perspective. And you know, for a 26 year old who thought already had a pretty good grasp on it, uh, it's made it that much better. And, and so yeah, you win in, in your third major start since becoming a dad. You win the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines, and you mentioned you're you're 26 years old. So I I admit that. This question feels kind of absurd to ask from a, from a media perspective, but I'm wondering how you felt. Were you starting to feel the pressure at all to get your first major championship? Had you had you felt that either internally or externally in any way prior to winning at Tory? Internally. Yeah. Yeah, I've wanted to do it. And when you're high ranked and I'm winning tournaments, both in PJ Tour and European Tour, and to be fair... I hadn't really even been in contention on a Sunday up until that one. Like, yeah, maybe on the second, the last group, but six shots back. Like, I had never, I've had some uh, some backdoor top tens, like I did at Kiowa, like I did at the Masters. Yeah, at the end of the day, I am top ten, but I, I came from behind. I had a great final round. I was getting tired of not being in contention, right? Like, I understand the the, the thing you get on put on that list of best player to never win a major real quickly, but well, I hadn't even had a chance, right? So in my mind, I knew I just needed to have the chance, and I knew I was ready. I think the hardest part was Thursday and Friday for me to not shoot myself out the tournament. When you're standing over putts on the 71st and 72nd holes, I, I can you ignore the fact that they're probably the biggest putts of your life yet? You know, are, are you what, what goes through your mind? Are you trying to stick to a process? How do you stay present in that moment? Well, they're only the biggest if you make them. If you don't, two more putts. Uh, you know, that Sunday was, was very unique. I, I felt something special the whole Sunday. And if you go back on the round, I keep I hit good putt after good putt after good putt. They just are very close from going in, but they don't want to, right? I mean, it's, it's point of greens. It's just US Open Sunday. You're not supposed to be dropping bombs left and right. On those two putts, I mean, you couldn't tailor two putts more to where the similarity to the greens where I grew up, where they're pointed greens and severely sloped. You know, uh, I'm used to hitting putts that break a lot. That's where I almost feel more comfortable, right? I'd rather have two feet of break than a dead straight putt. It, it's just weird. This is how I grew up and and where I'm comfortable. So when I saw, the, you know, that putt in 17 at the end of the day, it almost takes pressure off of me because you just, you kind of have to, you know, give it the right speed and all that big break. and. And uh, two putts were good, I'm not going to lie. Two putts were great from there apart. I was still one back. Uh, sorry, uh, I was tied for the lead. So it wouldn't have been that that detrimental. But I just felt good over it. Uh, I stick to a process, you know. Every time I get asked that question, we all have a routine for that, to get your mind on the proper frame of mind to be able to hit that putt. And that's exactly what I was doing on both holes. If anything... I felt more of the pressure on 18, obviously, because I knew that was not to seal the deal, but to make it a lot more difficult for Louis than on the other one. Have you, I guess, in your mind, what is the difference between the test, the the, the requirement in, say, just a whatever you want to call it, a regular PGA Tour event 
versus major championship. How different is the test of golf? And I know each major is different, but you know, I, I'm always curious why we see the same kind of names tend to rise up leaderboards at majors when tour events almost feel like, you know, you have some guys that cycle in and out. I'm curious your perspective on on what you think the different requirements are if they are different. Ooh. Well, I think you almost have to leave Augusta out of this because everybody gets to play Augusta every year, right? So you can learn how to play that golf course. That is uh, something you can learn how to play and try to find a strategy. But at the end of the day, I feel like it's like any other sport. The better players just show up when the moment's the biggest. And I feel like golf-related is you know, such a mental sport. It's all about what goes through your mind. You know, I feel like a lot of the people on the field are playing a major for the first time. You're nervous, you know, you're excited, you want to do well, and it's hard to put yourself in that situation. Uh, a lot a lot others might be a little bit scared of the golf setup, like it can happen in the U.S. Open, like it's happened to me. You tee off scared. <laughs> I have done that. And as a general norm, especially on the weekend, it's just, you know, the bigger players trying to take advantage of an opportunity. And that's why I think you see... That, I mean, that's one of the examples of Brooks. I just simply, it matters more. Therefore, you show up with your game. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to explain, to be honest. Uh, I wasn't that name until the last few majors since the Masters we had in the fall where uh, I've been playing pretty good and showing up in, in the leaderboard. But before that, I was one of those who maybe wanted it too much. You know, I feel like winning a major is something incredible and you have to take it one day at a time. And a lot of times I was trying to win it on a Thursday. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Precision Pro. Of course, hopefully you're watching our YouTube series, Taurus Sauce, which is airing on Wednesdays at 9 p.m. on our YouTube channel. It is brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro Golf. They make the best range finders in the world, and golf confidence is a wonderful thing. Doubt is not. That's why all of us here at No Lang Up carry Precision Pro Golf range finders. Precision Pro believes that golf is most enjoyed when you're confident. That's exactly what their products are designed to do, deliver confidence. And our listeners get $20 off any Precision Pro Golf rangefinder using coupon code NOLANGUP, all one word, at checkout. Again, that's 20% off. You get industry-leading customer support, free lifetime battery replacements, and the completely free Precision Pro Golf app. It helps you measure everything that matters to your golf game, distance, putts, fairways, hit, and more. It's super easy to pull out and kind of map your way around a hole maybe you haven't seen before. Really love their app. When everything's made to measure, nothing compares to Precision Pro. So go to precisionprogolf.com, use coupon code NOLANGUP at checkout for $20 off a Precision Pro Golf rangefinder. You'll never second-guess your distance. You'll never second-guess adding Precision Pro Golf to your bag. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Again, check out Taurus Sauce Episode 2. Uh, will be up Wednesday night. Uh, 9 p.m. is our premiere, and then you can always catch it um, as we travel around Michigan. You can catch it for eternity on YouTube. So let's get back to John Rom. What's an example of when you were teeing off when you were scared? <laughs> what did you learn from that? Oh, Shinnecock. My God. Because I get to the tee and it's like, well, you can't miss the fairway. You can't miss the green. You, you miss the green. You're not getting up and down. And I was just playing on a very... If you add that, I wasn't playing my best, right? My swing wasn't feeling great. I was just trying to not miss instead of hitting the right shot, right? Trying to hit a good shot. And that's, well, what happened, happened. I think I shot whatever... 13, 14 overs in two, in two days and, and went home early. So you mentioned learning stuff at Augusta. What, what, have you, what have you learned over the years at Augusta and what gives you confidence that you'll be able to win a master someday? Well, I feel like Augusta lets you play your own game, right? Like there's not one strategy that fits it. That's, that's kind of it, right? Like if you're not a straight driver, you don't need to be the best driver of the golf ball there. You just 
need to hit good iron shots and and be able to get some up and downs, right? It's you get such a variety of different players that play good and win there that you know it's just you got to learn how to play it yourself. Um, I think the best advice I've gotten at Augusta was from Phil. He said, "Listen, contrary to popular belief, every hole at Augusta National, except par five, uh, plays over par. So pars are never bad." And when he told me that is when, when when something clicked, right? Like you get to holes like like three, where you hit driver and you're 40 yards away, and you think you have to make birdie, but you rarely see a birdie on that hole, right? Holes like seven, where if you put it in the fairway, you have pretty much no more than nine iron. Uh, there's a couple examples like that, you know, nine, where with the right wind conditions, if you get it down there, you have a wedge, and you still see bogeys and mistakes, right? So. Just knowing that pars aren't bad. Even on par 5, you're not losing that much. For those statisticians out there, you're losing 0.1 to 0.2 strokes, depending on the day. So you really aren't missing that much. Uh, and I think that was the key. A lot of times you see people shoot 16, 17, 18 under at Augusta National, but that doesn't happen every year, right? Uh, so just realizing that pars aren't bad is was the biggest key phil was giving me the example when he won in 04 he parred 15 when he had a chance to make birdie and then ended up birdie in 16 and 18 just because he knew that you know in the past he's made the mistake of being too aggressive and, and making a big number at the wrong time and realizing that fours and fives and threes you know at the right time are really really good obviously so i think that's the best advice i've gotten because Technique-wise, each one plays the golf course the way they see fit, right? Because you actually have quite a bit of room to maneuver the ball the way you want. And yeah, you mentioned that you maybe haven't been in contention in contention at the Masters, but you've played five Masters in your top four uh, in ten of them, in, including each of the last four. So I think it uh, it does seem like you're learning something incrementally year over year that uh, that you play in that event. So um, yeah, I feel like if you have a Spanish passport, you're going to play well there. That's just kind of how it is. Well, we caught up, you know, briefly after your match concluded on Sunday at the Ryder Cup, and you were just buzzing. Despite, you know, the result of your match that day and the team result, it was, you know, you were just kind of overjoyed, if I may say, of uh, just from your experience that week. What is it, how would you describe it, you know, the, the why the Ryder Cup gave you that feeling, or what was it about this particular Ryder Cup that gave you that feeling? I think a bit of it was, you know, not, not, not a fake smile, but a f- smile covering up the pain of losing. Just trying to put, you know, keep a smile on and not be too upset in front of the camera, especially while people were playing. I didn't want my teammates to see me all, you know, down on myself just because we were having a bad day. I wanted to, if they saw me, to at least get a glimpse of a smile, you know, knowing that I was encouraging them. Uh, but at the same time, I had a lot of fun on the golf course with Sergio that week. You know, those two days, the first four ball we played with how good we played and seeing the, uh, which made Sergio the greatest Ryder Cup player of all time was very, very, very unique. And hands down, that was the most fun I've ever had on a golf course in my life. It's the satisfaction of maybe winning a major, winning a tournament is different, but as fun comes, that was the most enjoyable time on a golf course, those few days with him, you know, especially when I made that long putt on 16 on Saturday afternoon. Uh, that was probably one of the most fun moments I've had in my career. It was very unique just to share that with somebody like him, you know, somebody I looked up to for so long. Uh, it's just too bad, uh, you know, we're not going to have, we're not similar age and we're not going to have, you know, five or six more Ryder Cups to look forward to. But, you know, while we can both play the Ryder Cup, I'm definitely going to enjoy it as much as I can. Hmm. 
I'm not as an American fan. I'm not, I'm. It's going to take a lot more to convince me that uh, that Sergio won't be playing five or six more of these. I think he's going to be he's going to be striking he's going to be striking eight irons at the flag for eternity in my eyes. <laughs> it, it is it is incredible. Uh, like when he's standing over the ball, especially being him, I have full confidence that he's just going to absolutely strike it at the pin because he didn't do anything but that all week. <laughs> It's pretty incredible. Besides the tee shots on one where he admittedly was trying to hit it so hard that he just missed them, everything else, yeah, I mean, he just gets there and, and hits a perfect shot. I mean, iron shots were lasers right at the pin. It's, he's done it for 20 years, but, you know, when he's your teammate, it's that much more enjoyable. I was like, well, I just hope my 15 to 20 foot range putt is, is you know, is warmed up and, and we're going to have a lot of fun. And, and luckily, it was that week. Well, that's what I, one thing takeaway I had from watching you guys was seeing how you elevated each other and how, especially in foursomes, you know, when you're alternating, how you guys complemented each other so well and how you were able to arrange the holes where, you know, he was hitting, I think you were, he was teeing off the odd holes, you were teeing off the evens, which gave the the iron play, you know, gave him a lot of opportunities to hit a lot of mid irons or long irons into greens. And it was just really cool to see like how, teams actually worked both four ball and foursomes I've always said four ball you know you can kind of pair up whoever doesn't really matter you're just playing your own ball but I really got a sense of like what it kind of does to the other team to have another guy you know number one player in the world and also another guy who's throwing darts iron wise in on repeat how hard that is to beat well I mean to be fair you know, Serge is a great ball striking, but let's let's not say that ball striking is is my weakness. Right? No, that's I mean, what I'm saying. Really but... <laughs> we're both so good, Teeter Green, that we could have chosen any strategy. Which is the way they told us stats wise. I couldn't care any less where I teed off, and they're like, "Well, whoever tees off on the event has more putts." We're like, "Okay, well, I, I guess I'll putt." <laughs> uh, I think it was also more the fact that if you teed off on the odds, you have three par threes to deal with, right? You had three, um, you had seven, and you had 17. And I liked the tee shot on 18 as well. I liked the tee shot on 16, and I wasn't so sure about some of those par threes. I felt like the way Sergio hits the ball, it complemented better. So, and a lot of those par threes were kind of like just hit it to the center of the green, and let's see if we can make something happen. And I think that's why it worked, right? Uh, he was supposed to just give me a birdie chance, and I was supposed to make it. And when I started making those putts the first day, I got so much confidence that that's why it worked so well, right? I mean, we kind of executed the plan you're supposed to have. And when the guys hit it, I mean, six and five irons in those long par threes right at the pit and just giving me options, I was like, well, let's take advantage of it. So take us in that team room, you know, for because from what I've gathered, there's, you know, there's been some great stories about the energy in that room, how the new members of the team, you know, were celebrated, the videos and the production and the hype. Can you can you tell us what all that was like? And, you know, is that something that, you know, contributed greatly to your enjoyment of the week? You know, the, the European team production, European production team does such a good job that week with the videos, the, the fun videos and the motivational videos, right? I feel like I can't tell you how it is in the U.S. team because obviously I haven't been a part of it. But when you go into the Ryder Cup, you better be ready to laugh at yourself in our team room because that's basically the whole point of that. They're going to find something that might make you mad and just make jokes after jokes and video after video trying to get you uh, a little bit more loose, right? Like to get to just forget about your ego, forget about certain things. We're part of a team. We all make fun of each other. and. It is great to see all these players that have accomplished so much just having a good laugh, right? All these 40-some-year-olds acting 
like all of us 20 some year olds right it's it's really really cool to see that and that's what makes it that great atmosphere right as soon as you walk in i think everybody senses it and we kind of naturally just gravitate toward each other like that uh, and then those videos they make i mean they're emotional you know yeah they're really they're really really unique they really hit deep in the heart and uh the history of the team and the history of the european tour so it's uh, they do a great job with it mm. And Kyle Porter wrote a great piece for CBS about you know, the team aspect of the Ryder Cup and how, how strongly that differs from the atmosphere week to week on the PGA Tour. And a lot of it was kind of a reaction to Rory's reaction, you know, obviously being very emotional after his uh, his Sunday singles match. And just, you know, the perspective on, you know, how lonely pro golf can be at times. And I, I'm just wondering kind of what your perspective is on all that. And, and it just seemed like that week in particular, even in a losing effort, the European team or the people that we heard from just had such, you know, strong feelings and emotions towards that week. And I'm just, I'm just wondering what your perspective is on that. Well, it's really hard to explain. I mean, you had Rory crying on TV. You had Lee Westwood crying on TV. You had Ian Poulter, I'm pretty sure, in tears on TV. And a couple others that weren't on TV. So it's, I don't know how to explain it completely, right? I mean, you have... You're playing for so much more than just yourself, uh, yourself, the country you're representing and the whole continent, right? It's, uh, you know, you win as a team and you lose as a team. And I think, like I mentioned earlier, there's a state of vulnerability when it comes to being an athlete, especially in an event like that, that I don't think people realize, right? You put your heart and soul into it and sometimes it doesn't work out. So when you don't win a match, it's easy to feel like you're letting down the team when that couldn't be farther from the truth, right? I mean, we're all proud of each other because we're all trying as hard as we can. And that's why I think you see some of the emotions come out, right? I mean, you have Rory who's had nothing but success in the Ryder Cup and off the Ryder Cup and just didn't have a good week and, and he felt it, you know? He, he's he been a powerhouse in the European team for many years now and to not perform like he wants himself to perform can can be painful like that and I, I felt the same thing I mean I came in on my rookie Ryder Cup top four playing the world playing amazing and me and Rosie lost the first match against Brooks and Tony Finau and and god I was nearly in tears in tears I felt so bad for the team right and that was the first day I can't imagine on Sunday <laughs> so it's uh it's one of those things that it's very hard to explain unless you get to experience it yourself just by being on the team room you would understand and yeah I'm trying to do my best to put it into words, but I know I'm not doing nearly well, enough justice. Let me try to help because I, I, he had a line in that article especially that said, failing together can be far more meaningful than succeeding alone. And it, it, it sounds weird to say that, but it, I'm wondering, and I've heard you know Rory say similar things. I've heard David Duvall say things that you know when they've won big tournaments in their life, it, the feeling that they've had either shortly after or immediately after did not match their expectation for how that would feel. And I don't know if that helps at all kind of describe what you're, what you're saying or if you've experienced that at all in your career. Uh, I would say the duration, the duration, right? Like when I feel when I want an event, that's pretty much what I expected to feel. But I think uh, for most people that haven't experienced it, it won't last as long as you think. You think it will last forever. But when it's an individual sport, <laughs> after maybe 10 minutes is gone, like you've done it and it's over, right? It's a big sense of relief, I believe, after the tournament is done. And when you have part of a team event, win or lose, I think that lingers a little bit. You know, I've been a part of both and that win, you know, you want to celebrate it. You're, 
your state of euphoria is so much higher just because I feel like you're connecting the 12 players and vice captains and captains all together, right? So it's more like a 16 and one in that sense, right? So it's multiplied quite a bit. I don't think, I think the feeling is not a underwhelming feeling. It's just the duration of it is so much longer. And same with the loss, right? I mean, it's just, you're going to feel it for a longer period of time. Now, I can also say, you're talking about, if you take, take the players, you're talking about 20, 12 individuals who, for two years, well, I guess the European team is two, every two years, you know, you, you play alone 99.9% of the time. It's you and your caddy. You win or lose as an individual. Uh, whatever you do is you win or you lose. It's all your fault or it's all your what you've done, right? I mean, it's you're the one to blame whatever is good or bad, right? And I don't think we're used to dealing with emotions of the 11 other guys you're playing with, right? I don't think we're used to the uh, extra energy and taking on other people's emotion and you also don't want to put any of yours into other people especially if it's negative right I think we're just not used to being a part of a team and that's why I think you see a lot of those things that happen on the Ryder Cup that's what makes it unique that's what it's so unbelievable about it right I mean you have 24 of the best players in the world who come as one and even make Brooks and Bryson hug each other that never happens it's ever going to happen again this besides in the Ryder Cup right so it's it's quite special and I feel like only people that have played a team event were able to explain it. I don't think I'm doing the best job. <laughs> no, it, like, it, it takes like, this is probably my sixth or seventh Ryder Cup covering in some capacity. And it's taken this long for me to feel like I'm starting to understand that, right? In terms of, you know, just just the fact that, yeah, when you win something, it's, uh, you're, it's, it's just you. Like, you don't have anyone to share. You have your family and whatnot to share it with, but you don't have teammates to share it with. And it, uh, I don't know, it, this, this, this time around really resonated for me, I think. And I'll, I'll ask this about kind of the future of the Ryder Cup as well. So Europe dominated in 2018, the U.S. dominated in 2021, but home teams have won seven of the last eight and 10 of the last 12. So I'll just ask you this. Do you think the home field advantage is too big in the Ryder Cup? No. Okay. I mean, okay. Not that I'm used to getting controversial statements and not that this is going to be, but I do believe... COVID made this a much more favorable environment for the U.S. I totally Just agree. because yeah. we had four or five European fans. That's it. There was 45,000 people allowed on the golf course that week, not counting family and friends, which wasn't that much. 44,995 were American. So the problem with us is we knew that any cheer we heard was something bad and then any silence, right? So And then the cheers are overblown, like... Usually when you hit a wedge shot to 30 feet, there's no claps. And the U.S. team hit a wedge shot to 30 feet, which is not a great shot, and they're going crazy, right? So it's, it's hard as a player when you're going out to just not hear anything, right? You, couldn't, you didn't know what was going on as a team. And I think that's what could make it really hard, especially for, for the first-timers. Me and Sergio being the ones going off first so often, I think, made it easier just because, you know, there's nobody in front of you. You kind of got to win that point, right? It's an important one. But besides that, it was just odd to not hear anything, right? You have no support. I feel like any given year you might get, I don't know, maybe five to 10,000 Europeans that show up and you have a presence. We had none that, you know, walking into the first tee, it was total, total enemy territory, which I particularly loved. I had a great time. It was, you know, me and Sergio embraced it. We had a good time and then we embraced the silence, but you know, I can see how it can be a little bit different in, in other cases. Um, 
but I do think there's a home field advantage, and as it should be. I mean, every sport has it. It's just, it's just how it is. And I'll also say, you know, I, I, I talk about this too with Padraig Harrington, it, it, that COVID could not have been a great thing in, in general for the Europeans as a whole. I mean, you guys are used to playing, you know, a fair, a fair amount of your golf split around the world, more so maybe than the American players. And, you know, a lot of you have homes in the U.S. and whatnot, but just it was not the same effect, uh, COVID, in terms of your schedule worldwide and the overall just uh, the even the way the teams formulated, right? I mean, that, I feel like that's kind of a, a story that hasn't been totally, you know, told in, in recent months. I mean, can you believe, can you believe that we got approval for my parents, I think everybody's parents, to go to the Ryder Cup? I think it was five days before they had to travel or maybe a week. We didn't know if our family was going to be able to come, right, coming from Europe. I think that's a ludicrous thing about it. You're talking about one of the biggest events in the world that has 45,000 fans, yet I don't know if my parents can come from Spain. I had actually told them we couldn't do it. And it was three days later where I found out that they, they found a waiver to come in, and they did. There's a big difference this year in that case, right? I mean, just our support, our family, we didn't know if they were going to be able to be there. And, and that's... Uh, that's some of the things, I mean, it's not an excuse, but that's one of the things that COVID made it so much more difficult, right? If they, your parents live in the U.S., well, they could because it's easy you're in the U.S., but international travel made it so, so difficult uh, for them to be able to come. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, that, that's one of the examples, right? It's sure. just COVID didn't make it any easier for anybody. No, it, it most definitely did not. And it's, it's everyone's favorite topic, of course. And I know it's a, a topic you've covered extensively <laughs> since the memorial. But, you know, it, it was one of the wildest scenes of the year you know, where you're putting on an all-time <laughs> performance at Memorial. You're play, and, and we don't know this as fans watching, but the, you're, you've been in the testing protocol for several days prior to this, knowing that there was a chance you could test positive due to being exposed to somebody. So, but are you yeah. thinking about that? The, the, uh, while you're putting on this performance, are you th at all thinking about the possibility of testing positive while you're playing? No, but I was aware that it was a possibility. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know how to explain it. You know, I had gotten vaccinated shortly before. Uh, and I spoke about this too. I had the J&J &J vaccine appointment done and literally 30 minutes before I got to the clinic is when they, 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 uh, they called them back. They suspended it for the block lot problem they had for a second. And uh, that's why mine got delayed because then we had the PGA and I was like, well, I'm not going to take it right before. I'm not going to risk side effects, blah, blah, blah. And that's why I did what I did. And uh, I was, I mean, I was in contact with somebody who tested positive and then throughout that week, I wasn't feeling my best, but I was like, well, it could be side effects. You never know, right? I mean, I didn't have a fever. I just felt like a little cold, right? My throat wasn't feeling great. And uh, I just felt like, you know, not a hundred percent. I wasn't feeling my best. Uh, and I even told Adam when we we're starting the third round, like 10 minutes before, I'm like, dude, you know, I'm going to need a bit, a little bit extra time. I'm not feeling great. And who would have known that as soon as the gun went off, my mind just completely shifted. I forgot about it. I just, you know, the adrenaline took over. And when I finished and they told me, it, the, inf the the first shock is like, are you kidding me, right? I'm putting a record performance when they're supposed to have toughened this golf course for nothing low to ever happen again. And I'm here 18 under to three rounds, hoping I could, you know, set some kind of scoring record and be the second back-to-back -back champion and all those things. You know, I, I have my mind set on, on, you know, rewriting some history book stuff because I was feeling that good. And, you know, when I saw my trainer come down with a doctor, I knew 
right then and there i'm like okay i know it's positive uh, i just knew because my trainer there's no reason why he would come now for people that don't know this the main reason why they came is because they didn't want me being you know physically touching people on the crowd like high fives or anything and then you know presenting the positive test but you know uh, as much as it could have maybe handled been been handled a little bit better i i still think they did the right thing they had to tell me before i just wish <laughs> we would have found all this out way earlier so i wouldn't just put the performance i did on the last few holes and and you know you know what makes me more mad about all this when it comes to stats it counts as a wd i know which i have never withdrawn from a tournament and i won't just don't count it as a as a start because then it will say it says that last year i had 22 starts 15 top 10s it's really 21 starts 15 top 10s or at least do me the decency to give me a top 10 because even one-handed i would have you know been able to finish in the top 10 that week after what i you know with the six shot lead right so <laughs> it kind of it, it misses more and more in my mind that i will never wd from a tournament unless i physically can't pick up the club right so it's just it almost makes me more mad that if you're going to force me to withdraw, don't count it as a withdrawal. Don't count it as a start just towards future stats. It almost, you know, if I'm not going to get paid, I don't get anything of this. Just somehow change that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but get, getting back to what I was saying, because I was aware that it could have happened, uh, I actually got over it much quicker than people think. Honestly, people think, uh, people I've talked to think I'm probably still mad at it. I'm like, not really. I mean, it's COVID. I'm just happy that everybody in my household was healthy. You know, I've had friends die. I have, you know, really good family friends die from COVID. And it's not a fun, uh, it's not a fun thing to talk about. You know, it's not, it's not a fun virus to be making fun of because people are truly dying out there. Some others may not be getting uh, many side effects, but if you get a bad one, you know, odds of surviving are not very high. And uh, if anything, I was thankful that everybody I was around either didn't get it or if they did, it was mild. Especially my wife and my kid. God, I was really worried about that. Yeah, and that's yeah. That, answer, that was my next question was, you know, how you know your press conference at the U.S. Open was about as thoughtful and as grounded as imaginable. And I'm, it 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 sounds like it didn't take you long to reach that conclusion. And, and, and I had, you know, just in seeing your reaction off coming off the green Saturday, I in my mind it probably would have taken you a couple days to reach that, you know, kind of more grounded conclusion. But it seems like it was you were able to get there faster than we may have uh, may have been interpreting. About 20 minutes. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I, uh, I got into the scoring area. I threw a fit in the scoring area because I was pissed. Uh, and then talking about perspective, right? When I thought about my, my, my child and called my wife, uh, I went to that little trailer they have for the people that are in contact tracing. We ordered a couple of Buckeye shakes from the clubhouse. And uh, I was having a good old laugh with my caddy. We were laughing, first of all, because we couldn't believe the situation. <laughs> And uh, second of all, because, you know, we were all aware it could happen and taking it to the bottom point as well is if we're talking golf wise, we're a week and a half away from the U.S. Open and I just put the performance of my life. I should be happy about the state of my game, right? Be happy about that. I guess I, I'm going to have a couple of days to rest at home because I'm not allowed to leave. So try to be happy about that. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I got over it. It's just once I realized, you know. Kepa's healthy, Kelly's healthy, her parents that have been in contact are healthy. There was no reason for me to really be upset, right? It is what it is. Things happen. You move on. Um, I always choose, a, choose to think on the bright side of things. I'm always going to be positive in every single situation, even though it drives my wife absolutely nuts. 
Uh, I'm that guy. I'm that guy. Oh, maybe it could happen. This, you know, I'm always the, the positive guy. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I got over it. And like I said in that interview as well, I told, like I told, and I told Kelly as well, you know, I'm a believer in karma. And when something happens, I feel like I was owed something. And I told her, I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be uh, me winning something or us getting maybe another great, perfectly healthy pregnancy and child. I don't know, but something good is, is coming. And as I stood on that tee on Sunday at the US Open, I knew that was the day. So, you know, it's just, it evens out. At the end of the day, it's going to even out. And another thing that, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I've not heard you speak on before this year. I think it was in July. You had you had mentioned that you were born with a club foot. And I, one, I, I, have, have you ever, I guess, have people in golf known that? Or is there any reason why uh, people maybe didn't know that? And, and you know, what, uh, explain to us kind of what you were you were saying this summer about what, how you learned to swing the club or how that has <laughs> affected your swing. First of all, I'm going to note this because I heard on a podcast, uh, this is back to what we were talking about before. Uh, no, I was not trained to do that interview I did at the US Open, that uh, press conference. I was not told what to say. I actually was sent a spreadsheet of points to uh, to go through, and I basically threw it back in my manager's face, and I told him I was going to be myself. So I heard it on a podcast, and it's been lingering in my mind. That was 100% me, 100% John Rahm, just being honest. Like, I have always have been in interviews, but people have so been caught up on the fact that it's just an angry golfer that they couldn't get past that. And if COVID, see that COVID situation did anything for me, people got to see who the true John is, right? And it's, you know, there's been a shift in popular opinion big time in that case. You know, they got to see who truly, who I truly am, not who they thought I was. Yes, I get angry on the golf course because what I do matters to me, but that's a very small part of who I am as a person. Uh, and I feel like I had to say that because I don't usually say it, but I just, you know, uh, every interview I've done, nobody has ever told me what to say. Uh, it's me 100%. And I'm actually as transparent as I can be in every single one of them. That's why I feel like maybe, I don't know, they're boring to watch or or you just don't believe what I'm saying. But, you know, no, that's I've, just me. I've had the same um, reaction every time. You know, we, had, we did a podcast three and a half years ago or so, and I think... You know, we, we talked about the temper, you know, but it's all like, I think everyone reacted to that podcast saying, wow, I really learned something about that guy. And I, I feel like this year was, correct me if I'm, this, this year felt like the most comfortable in your own skin you've been as far as embracing, doing interviews or whatnot. It feels like you are, you know, it's part of growing up. You're, you're trying to learn, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're trying to be yourself yet learn the ropes of being a professional athlete. And it's, it's got to be, you know, there's, there's some ev evolution in that. And it felt like this was the, the, the clearest we've gotten to, see, gotten to see, like, who you actually really are this past year. Is that fair? Well, I've learned a lot about myself. And the birth of Kepa also made me learn a lot of things about myself. But it also feels like, well, I don't know, maybe since I got to number one in the world, and, <laughs> or I've been playing good enough for five years, I achieved the level of validity that I didn't have before. I don't know. <laughs> it just seems like now, uh, this, this, for some reason this year, uh, people have listened to what I've said a little bit more. I don't know why or what it's been, but, um, you know, I feel like I've been given a bit more credibility if I didn't have it before. It's almost a feeling I have, but yeah, I could also be because I'm so much more comfortable in my own skin and in my life. You know, I think that that could be it as well. Maybe I, I transmit what I want to, uh, what I want to transmit in a better way than I did before. Who knows? I mean, I can't really tell you. Yeah. 
Well, I don't know how we got there with that when I asked about the club foot, but I was, that was sorry, very that interesting. Was my, that was my, sorry, my bad. <laughs> yeah, the club foot thing. <laughs> this is, this, this makes me laugh because this is when I can say, you know, I get criticized when I do, when I hit bad shots in the golf course and all that. So I'm going to criticize all you journalists right now. Okay. Do your job better. <laughs> uh, I've been dropping hints for somebody to ask me the question so many times really? in so many interviews. If you go back to interviews, I say everybody has limitations on their body that dictate how you could swing. I've said that sentence for five years in a row. And it takes this older lady in the UK to finally catch on and say, what do you mean? And that's when I can finally explain, because I'm not going to sit up there and just start saying, oh, well, I have a club foot, you know, like I start explaining my life. Uh, you have no many, how many times, there's one journalist, I'm not going to say who, <laughs> who's really good friends with my swing coach and kept saying that I swing short because I have tight hips, which couldn't be farther from the truth. I'm like, dude, if you know my swing coach, why aren't you calling him to actually get some info on why I swing the way I do, right? And for people that don't know, my swing coach is Dave Phillips. I think it's co-creator of TPI. And I was born with a club foot, which for people that don't know, basically my right foot looked like a 60 degree lob, which I can tell you that right now. <laughs> From the ankle down, my foot was 90 degrees turned left and then the uh, inverse. So basically the sole of my foot was facing backwards and almost up uh, and then turn internally, right? And what, what happens at least back then is I was born, they basically sent me to a specialist. He broke my ankle into place, basically. Just relocated the foot, broke every bone there, and I was casted immediately. The first time my mom saw me, I had a cast on after being born 20 minutes in. And, you know, when you're that young, you grow so fast that I had to go, I believe, to the, to the hospital every week to get recasted uh, to fit my leg properly. But even then, it, uh, my right leg from knee down growed at a smaller rate, so... Uh, it's a centimeter and a half shorter, which is just over half an inch shorter. Uh, and my right foot is also smaller. And my right ankle mobility is extremely, extremely limited. That's why I swing short. Because if I go higher up, uh, I tend to lose balance. And I don't have the strength of my ankle to control the speed I could create. Uh, so that's why I have a, a short swing, you know. Uh, it's as simple as that. I just... I also grew up doing other sports. Uh, people know it as high ally in the U.S. Uh, for people that know, not the with a wooden hook, but just a wooden paddle. And it's a lot of sports that were very similar. You know, you don't take the paddle or the racket past shoulder height. And I learned how to create power that way. So, uh, you know, it's what made me more accurate. It's what uh, was easier for me to keep balance and keep control of. And because of that physical limitation, I just uh, kept going from there. And it's what made me made my swing the way it is. That's why I swing the way I swing. Now, it's also have a bowed wrist because I know that's how I naturally create power with my wrists. I also have hypermobility when I bow it, but I can't really cup it that much. So my wrists naturally, you know, fall that way. Uh, and that's what I mean by limitations, right? I feel like TPI has done a great job creating a, a screen process to know what your body can or cannot do. And trying to copy other swings is just not going to work out because physically you might not be able to do it. Right. So I would say for the younger generation, you don't necessarily need to work out all day and try to get, you know, super strong, but understand how your body moves and what your body can or cannot do is going to be very, very beneficial to, for you. I haven't tried to change technique on my swing in 10 years now, almost. Um, 
Maybe a little bit less. Uh, eight. No, 10 years is good. Maybe even more than 10 years. And uh, it's because of that. I realized early on that uh, I couldn't do certain things. And I was like, well, this is what I got. Let's try to get as, as good as we can with with this with this swing. And now you can obviously work out and treat certain parts of your body to complement that physique and those uh, limitations. I like to say guidelines, those guidelines that one has. And, and that's what I do. And that's what... Uh, it's kept me really healthy, and that's one of the keys to my consistency, I believe. I tailored my swing to what my body can do. Hmm. That's fantastic stuff. I'm, we're going to get you out of here. We really appreciate uh, the, the time you spent with us. Well, I'm going to get you out of here with these final questions. One, what's your what's your energy level at the end of you know those wildest 15 months of golf that I can really – to my knowledge, the wildest 15 months or busiest 15 months – uh, you know, in, in my history of, of covering golf at least. And, and what, a, what a successful 2022 looks like. I know that's two questions, but uh, just want to get your input on that before we, before we take off. So I think uh, the end of the year and Ryder Cup kind of really did me in, right? I mean, I went to U.S. Open. I feel like since April when Kipa was born, those last six months, mentally, we've gone through a lot, good and bad, right? I feel like it's, been, it's taken a lot of, a lot of a big toll on my, on my, my, in my mind, um, and I can tell you this last day on Friday in Valderrama, I was dragging myself around the golf course to where there was a couple times where I was trying to trying my best to play good golf. And I would look at a shot and my mind was completely blank because I could just not process. I was that tired mentally. Uh, I've never reached that point And I realized a couple days ago why I was basically from the restart in COVID on June of 2020 till last week. I really didn't have any rest, like none whatsoever. You know, we, we finished the season, even in the fall, we have the US Open, CJ, Zozo, and the Masters, right? Now, for people that don't know this, between the Masters and, and Maui, I had, I think it was six weeks. I flew home from the Masters. The next day I jumped on a plane to San Diego and spent five days, basically from sunrise to sunset, on the range at Callaway, working my butt off trying to make sure everything was fit perfectly and even when i got back home i kept grinding to make sure i was adjusted to everything i needed to when the season started um and i feel like you know not resting on that period when i got you know after the Ryder cup uh which playing five matches at that intensity and you know uh like i like to say enemy territory it was very very draining uh so yeah i was i mean a year and a half of non-stop and i was done i mean i'm on a process i'm on week one of three weeks without touching a golf club which i haven't done in a very long time because i need it you know it's my time to be a father it's my time to be a friend and just enjoy the life of a 26 year old which at the end of the day even though i'm a husband i'm a dad i'm still 26 i'll be 27 soon and i'm just trying to enjoy it you know, just a little bit of a reset. I'm still working out. I actually started working out yesterday and my God, I got out of shape in just two weeks. <laughs> it's, I drank a little bit more than I usually do. I'm not going to lie, but it's, uh, it's still, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm still tired. That's the thing. I'm trying to get back into it just to make sure when I start hitting a golf club, I'm, I'm physically ready to be able to do it. But, you know, that's what I like to say. Be a normal 26 year old, man, go, go karting, play, pickleball uh, I have a good friend and maybe go to a shooting range like, do a couple of different things that are not golf related just you know reset the mind uh, I heard Tom Brady talk once about competitive stamina and just making sure you can recharge that you know not, not go overboard and we have one more event left this year but I've, you know for the most part it's going to be uh, just relaxing 
Now, for the next year, I haven't set my goals yet. I haven't done. I usually with a mental coach and do an end of the year session with him and then focus on next year. Uh, you know, keep doing the great job I've been doing on and off the golf course. Uh, the process I've had has been really, really good this year. I think we're nailing down to uh, what really works for me. Uh, and obviously, if I could choose, uh, obviously, win a major again. Uh, that's a goal. Winning a major is always a goal. But uh, hopefully, I can get again more than one win on the PGA Tour. You know, I was able to do it last year. I want to I wanna get past that barrier of two wins and maybe, you know, get a year, uh, a player of the year, a worthy, worthy year, right? At least set my, my case with more than one win. And... Uh, yeah, just trying to improve in that sense, you know, trying to be keep betting, getting, uh, being, getting better and being a better player. But uh, I haven't thought about it, you know, I haven't fully ended this year yet. So uh, this is just, you know, what anybody would say. Uh, <laughs> I usually go into details with goal setting, but yeah, I mean, you know, hopefully winning two plus times, including the major, it's uh, it's a goal. Well, enjoy your rest, man. We really appreciate you spending some time with us. I know listeners will appreciate this insight and look forward to uh, seeing you back. Uh, you know, you got one more event you said and uh, back out in 2022. So thanks again and uh, look forward to catching up soon. But take care. My pleasure, Chris. Thank you. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect a 